So thank you all for uh, coming. Welcome to the London School of Economics. So I'm Wouter uh, Den Haan. I'm uh, one of the two directors of the new Center for Macroeconomics. So that's our uh, banner. Um, so it's a new center. It's funded by the ESRC. It's a group of uh, macroeconomists from the London School of Economics, Cambridge University, University College London, Bank of England, and the National Institute of Economic and Social Research. Um, this evening's guest speaker is Stephen King. Now, before I pro pro sorry, properly introduce him, there's a couple of comments about today's uh, event. So after the lecture, there will be a question and answer session. And then after when the dad, you can purchase the book in the hallway, and then Stephen is willing to sign them in here. Um, the event will be recorded, and if everything goes well, then we'll make the... Uh, the recording available online. There's a hashtag for this evening's event, and it is at LSE Affluence. And then, although you may want to use your mobile for twittering, it's that we asked whether you turn off the sound. Okay, so today we're very happy to have Stephen King. He's the, he has a very long title, the Group Chief Economist and Global Head of Economics and Asset Allocation Research at HSBC. He has written about you know, numerous important economic topics, austerity and monetary policy, problems in the Eurozone, uh, globalization. He's been in debates with famous economists. I saw him in action at the House of Lords where he debated uh, Nobel laureate uh, Paul Krugman. He's on the FTA list. He's a top-rated global economist in the annual Excel survey. So we're extremely lucky that Stephen King you know, has agreed to uh, give a lecture here. And he's going to talk about his new book, when the money has run out, the end of Western affluence. Well, thank you very much for those um, very kind words, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, first of all, I, I, I wanted to apologize, just in case you're wondering uh, why it's Stephen King, the economist, rather than Stephen <laughs> King, the, the horror story writer here, um, because sometimes people turn up thinking it's going to be the other um, Stephen King. In fact, I, I write books partly because people often say to me, are you Stephen King, the author? And I can now say, yes, I am. So it solves <laughs> that uh, particular problem. Um, well, my book is called When the Money Runs Out. And I, I wanted to stress, first of all, that in a literal sense, it can't run out because central banks have the ability to uh, print as much of it as they, as they wish to. So I mean this in a more kind of metaphorical sense, the idea that uh, we're feeling somehow the pinch, the idea that perhaps uh, we're not seeing the income gains that we saw um, in the past. As a consequence of that, uh, there are some big political questions as how we cope uh, with growth rates, which are significantly lower than might have been the case um, in the past. Um, and I wanted just to illustrate this by thinking about how uh, growth has changed in the Western world um, over the last 50 years or so. And the reason for using 50 years is I'm actually 50 this year. So effectively, this is a history um, of the world economy uh, from the point of view of my life so far. Um, so in the first decade of my life, uh, from 63 to 73, the UK economy, in per capita terms, in real terms, adjusted for inflation, uh, grew um, at around about 37% in total. So it's a 37% increase in per capita GDP uh, in the period from 63 to 73. From 73 to 83... Uh, there was an increase in per capita GDP, per capita incomes, 
of around about 13%, so quite a lot lower, but for very obvious reasons, that this was the decade of two oil shocks, um, the uh, decade which ended with some very deep recessions um, in the Western world. So it's not so surprising that uh, growth is so soft um, in that particular decade. In the third decade of my life, there was a rebound, um, an increase in per capita GDP of around about 25-26%. And in the fourth decade, um, there was an increase of over 30% again. Um, in the latest decade, hopefully not my last decade, but in the last, latest decade of my life, uh, there was an increase of only 4% in the UK. So a much weaker number than we have seen over the previous 40 years. And the story in the UK is not unique to the UK. It's a theme that you see in the US, um, in Italy, in France. And in many ways, you can think of the last decade in the Western world as the equivalent um, of Japan's first lost decade uh, through the course of the uh, 1990s. Now, why have we had such weak growth? Well, the obvious explanation, of course, is the, the financial crisis, all that followed from that. But I want to argue that actually it's not just the financial crisis that has contributed uh, to the softer performance uh, for Western economies in recent times. The first alternative reason, or um, other reason, um, for this uh, weaker growth uh, really relates to the U.S. Um, now, it's an odd place to start because people often think the U.S. is doing pretty well uh, compared with Europe. But actually, in the period from 2000 to 2007, the U.S. economy did relatively poorly. And that's an interesting period to look at because it was a peak-to-peak -peak economic comparison uh, from 2000 through to 2007. And in that peak-to-peak -peak period, uh, growth in the U.S. averaged about 2.5%, uh, which wasn't too bad. But that compared with a 3% average during the course of the 1980s and 1990s, so quite a lot lower, and that matters over a cumulative period of time. But also it was low despite the fact that there was massive monetary and fiscal stimulus, very low interest rates after the bursting of the dot-com bubble, and of course a huge fiscal stimulus, which amounted to roughly the equivalent of 6% of US GDP between 1999 and 2005. So despite massive monetary and fiscal stimulus, despite a huge housing boom, despite huge leverage within the financial system, the growth rate was nevertheless lower than had been the case during uh, the 1980s and, and 1990s. So that suggests that maybe something wasn't quite right about the US economy. Uh, perhaps it was beginning to slow down even before uh, the onset um, of the financial crisis. Another key factor is this. The emerging nations over the last 10 years have done generally very, very well indeed. And 10 years ago, if you'd known how strong China and India are going to be, you might well have been pretty optimistic about the performance of the Western world. Just to, to put these numbers into context, I mentioned before the, the increase in per capita GDP in the UK, which is 4% over the last 10 years, Well, the increase in Chinese per capita GDP over the same period of time was a remarkable 130%. The increase in Indian per capita GDP was an almost as remarkable 80%. Now, I put it to you that if you'd known with certainty how strong China and India are going to be over the last 10 years, you might well have argued this was a wonderful opportunity for the West to do well, because surely, with all that Chinese and Indian consumption taking place, it must mean that the West would do well through exports, through investment, uh, through job opportunities within the export sectors, which actually would have created a very positive story for the West. It didn't happen like that. Actually, the West remained extremely weak. It slowed down a long way, even as um, India and China uh, spread away um, into the, the distant horizon. I also think that 
there are a series of longer-term drivers uh, which have been important in explaining why it is that actually it's not so much that growth is weak currently, but rather that growth was so exceptionally strong, what we describe as a golden age for the Western world from the 1950s to perhaps towards the end of the 20th century. And these are drivers, I think, that were unique to that particular period and helped to explain why it was uh, that we saw a kind of leap in the level of activity uh, which was reflected in this idea uh, of continuous rapid growth rates year by year by year. So what were those factors? The first factor is a remarkable opening up um, of world trade. There were really two revolutions over the last 50 years. The first revolution was in the 50s and 60s uh, when you actually saw a tremendous opening up of trade within what we now call the OECD area. Uh, just to give you a sense of how strong this was, um, in the 1950s, bilateral trade growth between Japan and the U.S. was running at 20% year by year, an extraordinary gain. The second big revolution, I would argue, was from the 1980s onwards, the opening of what might describe as east-west trade, partly associated with the reforms of Deng Xiaoping uh, in China, and also associated, of course, with the fall of the Berlin Wall uh, in 1989. So the consequence of that is that you ended up uh, with a very, very powerful story of the opening up of trade, which gave lots of trade multipliers and delivered much faster growth than might normally be the case. But that's a one-off. Effectively, you're moving from a world um, of protectionism and isolationism, which characterized the first half of the 20th century, to a world that's now much more open. There is still more room to see widening trade opportunities, but I would like to argue that most of those now reside not so much in the West, but instead on a South-South basis. Uh, trade opening up between Asia, the Middle East, Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America. And that will certainly benefit those regions of the world, but it's not quite so obvious that it has quite the same driving force uh, for the Western world. The next issue um, is women. Women in the workforce. Back in the 1950s, uh, opportunities for women uh, were tiny uh, in the Western world. And that's changed hugely. Maybe not enough. The glass ceiling is still too low. But nevertheless, the opportunities of women have changed dramatically compared with the 50s and 60s. So a huge effective increase in labor supply a huge increase in efficiency. And the consequence, again, was a significant rise in living standards. But you can only have one adjustment of that kind, and that, I think, has mostly happened over the last 50 years. Third aspect, education. Uh, the opportunity of people to go to university back in the 50s was mostly very, very low indeed. It's now almost a right that people go to university today. So, again, a huge improvement in education, which is great. It leads to a one-off increase in the level of activity, but beyond that, debatable, it gives you quite the same kind of growth rates into the future. Consumer credit, another powerful story. Uh, back in the 1950s, uh, consumer credit was very, very low as a share of income. In the US, it was about 40% of income. Before the financial crisis, it was 140% of income. So an extraordinary change. For the most part, that was a very, very good change. It meant that effectively, uh, consumers could consume today on the basis of tomorrow's income. It meant they could smooth their consumption over their life cycles. And it meant also that companies, by taking advantage of consumer credit, could exploit economies of scale. So there was more efficiency in production, which, of course, led to lower prices for all sorts of things. So that was very good news. But I'd like to argue that today it's very difficult to imagine that consumer credit can grow quite as quickly as it was the case over the last 50 or 60 years, maybe perhaps in China or in India or parts of the emerging world, but not so much in the Western world. So for all these reasons, I'd like to suggest that we went through an unusual golden age of growth over the last 50 or 60 years, which could be difficult to replicate in the future. So even if you are a strong believer in technology, and I have to say I am a strong believer in technology, even with that wonderful technology still coming through, it is still likely 
that per capita income gains will not be as strong as was the case over the last 60 or 70 years. There have been other factors which have led to this unusual period of rapid growth. The problem with this is that if growth really has slowed, has slowed down significantly, politicians as yet haven't really recognised that. And we in society have not recognised that. We continue to make promises to ourselves which are based on a continuous extrapolation of the growth rates of old. If you want some recent examples of this, it really follows the financial crisis. And after the financial crisis, uh, there was a very strong view that not only could we avoid a great depression, but we could quickly return to the growth rates of old. And we haven't done so. What we've seen over the course of the last few years is a growing gap between the expectations that came through and the subsequent economic reality. One way of looking at this is to take the consensus forecasts uh, that were produced back in, say, 2007 uh, for members of the Western economies and compare the implied level of activity by today with the actual level of activity that we're now seeing. And the actual level across different countries is below the projected level by between 5 and 20%. It's a huge difference. We're much worse off than we thought we were going to be five or six years ago. And yet budget projections... Business projections still tend to assume a very quick return uh, to the growth rates of old. In fact, we've been really spending beyond our means for quite some time now. And in the book, I, I, I use some uh, examples um, from the OECD uh, looking at uh, public spending um, as a share of GDP and how it's changed over the course of the last few years. In the UK, and these are OECD numbers, not so much Treasury numbers, uh, public spending as a share of GDP was around about 36%. 37% uh, back in 2000. By 2012, it was almost at 50%. That's a huge increase in just 12 years. Now, you might naturally think that the reason for that increase uh, was all associated with the financial crisis. It would be a very good reason for why it would be that public spending would rise as a share of GDP. But actually, in the UK's case, two-thirds um, of that increase in public spending occurred before the financial crisis. There was a belief before the financial crisis that we could continue to grow rapidly and therefore justify uh, these substantial increases in public spending. But it turns out that actually the growth rates that have been achieved are far lower than the UK government was projecting uh, five, six, seven years ago, even ten years ago. So from that point of view, we had the big increase in public spending assuming a continuous increase in GDP, but the actual increase has not matched uh, the assumption, which I think is a major problem. Equally, as mentioned before, there's been a significant loosening of fiscal policy even before the onset of, of the financial crisis. I mentioned that 6% of GDP loosening uh, from the US between 1999 and 2005, which was mostly associated with the so-called Bush tax cuts. We had a very similar loosening of policy in the UK, 6% of GDP, but mostly associated with public spending increases. In both cases, there was an assumption that we could grow away out of an unusual period of rather low growth. It hasn't really happened. So we're now left with much higher levels of public spending, insufficient tax revenues, and, of course, very large budget deficits as a consequence um, of some of those um, decisions. Equally, during this rather attractive period before the onset of the financial crisis, people didn't ask too many questions about, if you like, the value for money associated with public spending. Um, so the National Health Service is a, a great institution in the UK, but the ONS, the Office of National Statistics, did a study three or four years ago looking at productivity in the health service, saying, well, you know, do we get value for money from it? How, how are we seeing productivity changing um, over the years? 
Um, and the estimates they came up with were rather interesting. They came up with five different estimates of productivity. You can tell there's some economists involved in this because there were tremendous uncertainties as to what happened to productivity. And the five estimates suggested two, which said productivity had increased for quite a long way, two, where it had fallen quite a long way, and one where productivity was unchanged. In fact, we had no idea what had happened to spending in the health service. We had no way of measuring it. In actual fact, when you look at the two estimates which suggested that productivity had increased, the reason for the increase in productivity was mostly associated uh, with a reduction in the incidence of heart disease for people in their 50s and 60s, which was not so much the result of the health service, but rather improvements in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, which were the result of the widespread use of statins, which effectively reduced the incidence of heart disease. So is that a productivity gain for the health service, or is it more a productivity gain for the pharmaceutical industry? Slightly different issue, but I think it's important. Other areas of public spending, um, infrastructure. Now, we talked today about the need for much stronger infrastructure spending as a way of bailing ourselves out of this current difficulty. But I'll give you an example of a country that had tremendous infrastructure spending over the course of the last few years, which hasn't really delivered the goods. And that example is Spain. Spain has fantastic infrastructure. You fly to Madrid, go to the new terminal at the airport there. It's a wonderful terminal. You look at their railway lines being constructed over the course of the last few years. You can travel around Spain very, very easily indeed. The whole thing is wonderful. But they haven't quite delivered the growth that was expected from the infrastructure spending. Um, so again, there was an assumption this would deliver uh, the economic goods. It hasn't quite delivered what was perhaps expected. And of course, Spain had its own significant difficulties over the last few years. But I don't want to suggest that this is somehow a story that is confined to the public sector. It would be a mistake to think that somehow this extrapolation of good news is only in the public sector. It is also rife within the private sector as well. Um, and it's rife partly because in the private sector people have generously paid themselves on the assumption they can justify why it is their pay is so incredibly high. Um, now, one example here is uh, CEOs of S&P 500 companies um, in, the, uh, in the US. It's a very nice tune, by the way. Um, uh, but um, in, in the S&P 500 companies, there was a survey done um, recently um, which... Um, which suggested that back in 1980, uh, CEOs were paid 42 times uh, the salary of a typical worker within those companies. That sounds pretty big. It suggests that CEOs, even by 1980, thought they were doing a pretty good job relative to other people in their companies. Now, the multiple isn't 40 times, it's 380 times. So in the public sector, there's been all sorts of peculiarities going on, but in the private sector, the same thing also applies. Uh, we've all effectively assumed that the good times will roll. And we've all assumed that nothing can possibly go wrong. And we've all assumed that the growth rates of old are somehow God-given. So my question is, well, if they're not God-given, if it turns out that growth is much weaker in the future, how does society adjust to this new world where we made promises to ourselves that can no longer easily be met? and where the breakage of those promises is actually something which politically um, is a major challenge. I wanted just to, to quote from the book itself, if you can allow me that liberty. Um, it's a little section which tries to sum up um, how I felt about how we thought about the world before the onset of the financial crisis. Um, and I said the following. We began to extrapolate economic gains into the future. We began to believe that the economy is free of excessive government interference, could happily expand, over the years delivering higher incomes for all. We were so confident in continued economic progress that we could be educated yesterday, consume today, retire tomorrow, 
have excellent health care the next day, and create a better life for our children, while at the same time saving very little. Uh, capital markets will take care of everything. Returns will always be high enough to allow us to fulfill our whims. Sacrifice was unnecessary. We could borrow from others, foreigners, our children, and invest their money wisely for our collective benefit. And if we were lucky enough to have some savings, we could invest them all over the world. It would return sufficiently high to guarantee both our own financial futures and the financial futures of those who benefited from our generosity. We hadn't just mastered our economies, we had mastered time itself. And I think there's a reasonable summary of how we thought about the world before the financial crisis. So, if we're now faced with a much weaker growth rate, we're faced with the possibility of broken promises. Faced with broken promises, we're faced also with, I think, a major moral dilemma, uh, which is best captured, in my view, by Adam Smith, writing back in the 1700s. Now, Adam Smith was, of course, one of the greatest economists, but one reason why he was so great was he typically communicated in simple English terms. Uh, no sort of nasty econometrics or anything like that. It was a pretty basic story. And he described three states of nature um, in the uh, typical economy. He described the progressive state, which was the happy and contented state, where there was continuous economic expansion. He described the dull state, which you might describe as stagnation, and the melancholy state, uh, which was effectively continuous contraction. And his point about these states was that the wonderful thing about the progressive state was that even if there were increases in income inequality, even if there were uncertainties about who did and who didn't pay taxes, and even if there were questions about corruption and bribery, so long as the economy as a whole was continuously expanding, no one would necessarily feel that they individually were in danger of becoming worse off. And the consequence of that was that trust within society would tend to remain relatively high, and with high levels of trust, the economic expansion might continue. He also talked about the dull and the melancholy states. And then those states were associated, really, with continuous stagnation or contraction, which actually created problems in society, most obviously, that if you have a dull or melancholy state, in that situation, one person's gain is effectively another person's loss. It becomes a kind of zero-sum gain. And in that situation where someone makes a gain, even if they're not responsible for the other person's loss, society as a whole will increasingly frown upon the fact that someone's made a gain. And if no one can make gains very easily, or if the gains are taxed away significantly, then you're in danger of stifling the kind of entrepreneurial spirit that you would need eventually to get a decent recovery in economic activity. So a world of stagnation was actually a very dangerous world, because it's a world whereby you could lock into stagnation uh, over the medium term. Um, and in the book, I, I refer to this using two different examples over the course of the last 100 years. The first example, the most recent example, is Japan, uh, which has been through you know, 20 years of, of broad stagnation. But Japan, I would argue, started off with a significant advantage, which is when its stagnation started, Japanese society was still relatively equal. You could genuinely say that they were all in it together because there was a genuine sense that there wasn't a huge breakage of society, that the income inequality was genuinely quite low. The other example I used was Argentina, which is a much more worrying example, because in Argentina's case, uh, there was stagnation that really started from the 1930s during the Great Depression. There were some bad decisions made by Argentine politicians for isolation-type uh, policies, uh, which effectively left Argentina stranded from the point of view of a shortfall of savings and therefore insufficient capital spending. And you ended up with a situation whereby there was a big battle between what you might describe as the haves and the have-nots. The haves were in the minority, the have-nots were in the majority, but in the absence of economic growth, 
there was continuous pressure to take money away from the Habs. But the consequence of that ultimately was a society that stifled innovation, stifled growth, and ended up ending up significantly worse than perhaps people might have expected. And the reason why I mention Argentina is that the longer-term consequences of that story were really very, very powerful indeed. Uh, back in 1900, an Argentine per capita incomes were amongst the highest in the whole world. It was a very successful economy. Over the previous 30 years, from 1870 to 1900, Argentine growth had been twice that of, for example, Germany. By 1900, they had equivalent per capita incomes. This is a period when Germany itself had been industrializing very, very rapidly. Today, Argentine per capita incomes are only half of those in Germany and one-third those in the U.S. So if you have a society that's fractured, a society with high levels of income inequality, a society where basically the fiscal promises and political promises don't significantly add up, you have a problem whereby increasingly you can lock in the kind of Adam Smith at dull and melancholy states over many, many years. So, how do you deal with this? The two ways of dealing with it, really. The first is to accept that we genuinely are worse off, and we have to effectively make sacrifices to adjust to our newfound poverty. And the other way is to pretend that we're not worse off and to promise ourselves we have some kind of magic trick that we can offer to return to the growth rates of old. And I think that there's a powerful belief amongst politicians, policymakers, monetary policymakers, that indeed there is a magic wand that can be waved. We can actually quickly return to the growth rates of old. And this is actually built into all the forecasts that we've seen over the last three or four years. You, you go back to the forecast made by, for example, the Bank of England or the Federal Reserve uh, three or four years ago, and look at what they were projecting for growth uh, over this recent period of time. They were much more optimistic than what we've actually seen coming through uh, over this period. There was, if you like, a, an optimism bias built into the forecast. And there's a reason for this. And it relates to work not from an economist, but instead from a psychoanalyst, specifically from Sigmund Freud. And this relates to a paper he wrote uh, called The Future of an Illusion, uh, which was actually about religion. Um, and his concern was that certain beliefs that we have are not really based on reality, as he saw it, but rather based on a desire for wish fulfillment. And specifically, if I can find the right page in the book, um, he said this. He said, we call a belief an illusion uh, when wish fulfillment is a prominent factor in its motivation while disregarding its relations to reality. And what I want to suggest is that policymakers and politicians and so on are guilty of an illusion about strong economic growth because the alternative is not worth thinking about. And therefore, you simply continuously assume that growth will return, even when it doesn't. Because, of course, without growth, you have to make very difficult decisions about pensions, healthcare, education, about CEOs' pay, bankers' bonuses, a whole bunch of things that are all potentially tricky for certain people in society. But as long as you can assume growth comes back, those decisions can be postponed for another day. You don't have to worry about them. So the latest version of Magic Wands um, is effectively QE. This is the magic wand of choice uh, that central banks have used over the course of the last few years. And to be fair, it worked very, very well initially. Uh, QE, or quantitative easing, uh, was initially seen as a way of cementing an escape uh, from a, another Great Depression. And back in 2008, 2009, we were genuinely faced, I believe, with the risk of another Great Depression. And just to remind you of what happened during the first Great Depression, back in the 1930s, there was a remarkable loss 
of economic activity, particularly in the U.S. U.S. GDP fell a remarkable 30% during the Depression. Prices fell a remarkable 20%. So nominal GDP, the value of GDP, fell 50% within just three or four years. It was a total catastrophe associated with the failure of about 13,000 banks within that period of time. It was a total disaster. Today, U.S. GDP in nominal terms, in value terms, is about 13 or 14% higher than it was at the peak before the financial crisis. So to the extent that QE has contributed to preventing the 1930s-style meltdown, it's really been a wonderful thing. Unfortunately, policymakers didn't just say they could avoid a 1930s-style meltdown. They promised us they could return to the growth rates of old. And that, I have to say, has proved to be a lot more difficult, much more difficult to return to those kinds of growth rates. And indeed, I would argue that whereas QE started off as being a particularly powerful antibiotic designed to cure an initial problem, it has now become much more like an addictive painkiller. It's nice to be on, but actually, as with all addictive painkillers, there is a potential uh, for longer-term damage. And I would argue that there are a number of factors behind QE today which are working very differently from what central banks initially expected, which were in danger of perhaps locking in lower growth and potential distortions to financial markets. So the first of these is effectively that QE is now working, in my view, increasingly to have an impact on income and wealth distribution, uh, rather than necessarily um, actually curing the underlying economic growth problem. And in the UK, there's a particularly obvious example of this. There are two obvious transmission mechanisms of QE through the economy. The first of these um, is through what's called the portfolio balance effect domestically. So if you effectively buy lots of, of government bonds, gilts, and so on, the yields drop, it forces pension funds and other investors to switch out of these very low-risk instruments into something which is slightly more uh, risky, like an equity or a corporate bond. And the idea of this was that um, ultimately if the value of equities and corporate bonds went up significantly, it would allow companies to raise funds without having recourse to a banking system that didn't really work very well. So the idea was you could bypass the banks, uh, create this big capital improvement, and you could raise funds through that particular uh, mechanism. At the same time, uh, QE would also lower the exchange rate from what would otherwise be the case, uh, allow for some kind of rebalancing of the economy, more of an export-led growth story, and everything would be absolutely fantastic from that point of view. So it's a kind of win-win story. That was the idea. But it hasn't really worked like that, uh, because exports haven't really picked up, Investment hasn't really picked up. The fall in the exchange rate has certainly helped to lift inflation in the UK, but only price inflation via higher import prices. Wage inflation hasn't picked up at all. In fact, we've been in the UK through the biggest squeeze in real wages uh, since the 19th century, if not before. So it's been an extraordinary period um, of, of like monetary austerity. It's been imposed on the majority of the population uh, through this tremendous squeeze um, in real wages. At the same time, uh, although QE hasn't necessarily led to a big surge in, in corporate investment, it has nevertheless made those people who own lots of financial assets much richer because it's clear that financial asset values have risen quite a long way. So in fact, what we've witnessed over the course of the last few years is a redistribution of income uh, from those on wages to those who are financially asset rich. And those who are financially asset rich are just rich. Uh, and the key thing about this is that those who are financially asset-rich tend to spend little out of any gains to their wealth, uh, whereas those who depend primarily on wage income uh, tend to re reduce their spending quite a lot if their wages are cut. So effectively, when you redistribute from the wage earners 
uh, to the owners of financial assets, you're likely on average to end up with a lower marginal propensity to consume. And the consequence of that is the demand drivers of growth don't materialize in quite the usual kind of way. Second factor, um, I think that QE helps to distort uh, capital markets. They don't work quite so well. Admittedly, they didn't work particularly well before the financial crisis, but nevertheless, I think they work a little less well um, now. Um, and one danger of this, which is a rather cruel observation in one sense, is that if capital markets don't work quite so well, then companies that perhaps should have failed don't fail. And as a consequence of that, if companies that should have failed don't fail, it means that companies that should be able to raise funds more easily perhaps can't do so quite so easily. So what I think we've seen in the UK is the beginnings of what we describe as a kind of zombie company effect, that the capital markets aren't creating uh, a, a, a rotation of investment away from inefficient companies towards efficient companies, and the consequence of that is that, again, we end up with lower growth. And one way you can measure that is through a much weaker productivity performance than one might normally expect. So, in a, in a sense, a loss of competitiveness over the course of the last few years. And the third factor, which I think is relevant for the Federal Reserve's decisions uh, this evening, is that QE may be having an effect in distorting financial markets more broadly, creating the beginnings of new uh, financial asset bubbles. Uh, if you go back to 10 years ago, uh, when, of course, there was very loose monetary and fiscal policy, no one really thought about bubbles, but actually the foundations were laid for the big financial crisis back in 2003, because back then, huge monetary and fiscal stimulus contributed to the beginnings of what became known as the housing bubble and the subprime crisis. So the risk today, I think, is that by offering too much stimulus, uh, relying too much on QE, we'll be creating financial bubbles that will hurt us at some point in the future. It's the unknown effects of these experimental policies that I think are potentially dangerous. So, that's all very well. There's a limit to what QE can deliver. But some would argue... We should do much more than that. We should be much braver than simply offering more QE. We should offer massive monetary and fiscal stimulus, and this will bail us out. And uh, uh, there are plenty of people who argue that, one of which, of course, is, is Paul Krugman, who would say that this is exactly what we should be doing. And, and what they try to evoke in these arguments is the spirit of the 1930s. So we should do exactly the same as Roosevelt did uh, with the New Deal in the 1930s. Surely we can repeat that experience. And if we could do so, we'd end up with a return to decent growth rates. So there's, again, a kind of monetary and fiscal magic wand that can be uh, somehow waived. Well, the problem there, I think, is that the situation currently, in my view, is fundamentally different from the 1930s. First of all, because we've actually avoided the collapse that occurred in the 1930s, so we're already much better off than was the case back then. But also, I think the policies that Roosevelt pursued are very difficult to pursue today. So the first point is this. Uh, when, when Roosevelt first came into power in 1933 after Hoover had been defeated, Hoover had left him with a legacy of budget deficit, which is only 2% of GDP. We have budget deficits in the Western world now of 6, 7, 8, 9% of GDP. So we're already having borrowed a lot more than was the case when Hoover left office. Secondly, it was very easy back then to have a, a radical change in the monetary regime because back then most countries were still stuck to the gold standard. They came off very, very quickly during the 1930s. The US did so in the mid-1930s. The consequence of that was a massive change in regime, a huge monetary stimulus of a kind that was simply not expected. We've already been through that over the course of the last few years. There hasn't been the restriction of monetary policy that there was under the gold standard, at least not in parts of the world other than, say, in the Eurozone, which is a slightly different story that is playing out currently. So these are, I think, are, you know, quite, quite important issues. Um, the other thing that, that Roosevelt did 
was to adopt what you might describe in modern-day language as a price-level target. He committed to creating significantly higher inflation. So that's good news, because effectively higher inflation wipes out uh, real debts and therefore allows those debtors to spend more freely. But when Roosevelt did this, he was very, very clear on what he was trying to achieve. He gave a, a fireside chat um, in 1933, where he said he wanted to raise prices, but only back to where they had been in 1929. He was very clear that he wanted to allow debtors to repay their debts in 1929 dollars, not in the deflated 1933 dollars, but he didn't want to go any further. He said very clearly he did not want to replace one wrong, i.e. deflation, with another wrong, in other words, inflation, or you know, effectively raising the price level well beyond what had been the case in 1929. So I'd like to argue that today the options that were available to Roosevelt simply aren't available, and actually the economy itself is fundamentally different from what was the case back then, as a consequence, the 1930s story doesn't really work. Now, there are people, of course, who disagree with me, including Paul Krugman, um, and I would describe these people perhaps as people with a depression fetish, that they always see a depression. There's always one lurking around the corner, and it's always wise to try to do something about it. There's always a need for more and more and more stimulus. And I wanted to quote Krugman, not that I want to attack him, of course, um, he's a very nice chap, but... Um, um, I wanted to quote him in one particular section uh, because um, this is the line that he used. Of course, at this point, I can't actually find the line, which is going to defeat this argument altogether. Here we go. He said this, he wrote this. He said, the basic point is that the recession wasn't a typical post-war slump uh, brought on when an inflation-fighting Fed raises interest rates and easily ended by a snapback in housing and consumer spending when the Fed brings rates back down again. This was a pre-war-style recession, a morning after, brought on by irrational exuberance. To fight this recession, the Fed needs more than the snapback. It needs soaring household spending to offset moribund business investment. I just don't understand the grounds for optimism. Who exactly is about to start spending a lot more? At this point, it's a lot easier to tell a story about how the recovery will stall than about how it will speed up. Certainly a powerful case, you might think, uh, for a significant stimulus. Unfortunately... Krugman wrote that in August 2002. It's not a recent quote. He was arguing very much in favour of powerful stimulus back in 2002, and we know eventually where that powerful stimulus took us. We ended up with the housing boom, with the subprime crisis. There are dangers of having too much stimulus and not recognising that, in fact, we have underlying fundamental economic issues which are much more a constraint on the supply performance of the economy rather than simply a story about a lack of demand. So... What do you end up with? You end up with this kind of dull and melancholy state, the Adam Smith state. Um, and that, in turn, I think raises some deep questions about the state of our society. And those deep questions partly revolve around issues of trust. Trust is a really important lubricant of how markets work. All markets depend on trust, whether it's a simple vegetable stall uh, through to financial markets more generally. But trust today is in very, very short supply. It's obviously in short supply amongst banks, between banks and between banks and society more generally. But it's also in short supply in those areas which might do something about banks or might do something about uh, trying to reform the economy. And the most obvious area here is trust in government. Um, and fortunately, Gallup does a survey of trust in government in the US which goes back over a number of years. Um, and we look at that survey, it shows that trust in Congress, the administration today, is at its lowest level ever and even lower than was the case during the Watergate scandal in the 1970s. 
So the issue here is not just about trust within the private sector or trust within banks. It's about trust across the economy more broadly. And that sense of trust is gradually being eroded, partly because in a stagnant society, uh, groups begin to form against each other, begin not to trust each other, and in particular, when you want to try to deliver reform in a society of that kind, the reform itself is not trusted because reform essentially creates winners and losers. Now, in a growing economy, relative winners and losers don't necessarily create absolute winners and losers, but in a dull or melancholy state, the risk is you end up with absolute losers who, of course, resist the reform. And in the absence of reform, the danger of locking in continuous weak growth uh, becomes that much greater. Now, the threats to society from this are not just economic and financial threats. They're also uh, political and social threats. And in the book, I, I, I looked at a number of historical examples. I was very keen to emphasize the importance of history in understanding where we are today. So I didn't want to say that history repeated itself. That would be obviously absurd. But I wanted to use illustrations from history as to how things can go wrong um, as a consequence of a sudden period of disappointment economically, which then forces people to uh, break promises or perhaps live within their means, which are much more stilted than was the case previously. So I talk about the Black Death, the Peasants' Revolt that followed shortly afterwards. Um, I talk about uh, the French Revolution. And interestingly, the French Revolution... De Tocqueville, who wrote about the French Revolution in the 19th century, uh, argued that in the 20 or 30 years before the French Revolution, that there was a, an unheralded period of rising prosperity. And that period of rising prosperity created expectations of further increases in prosperity and also argued strongly for increased political change. When there was a, a setback to that prosperity gain as a consequence of bad harvest at the end of the 1780s, uh, the consequence was that wheat prices soared, bread prices soared, but the rulers, or the ruling elite, basically the clergy, the nobility, and the monarchy, absolutely refused to accept any decline in living standards themselves. So in effect, they imposed a decline in living standards on everybody else, the so-called further state. And of course, the rest is uh, rather unfortunate history, a very, very violent um, uprising. Actually, I discovered in my uh, work on the French Revolution that uh, the French Revolution produced the prototypical uh, fat cat, the first fat cat, really, uh, who was Louis XVI. I mention this because... Uh, when Louis XVI went to the guillotine um, and was beheaded, um, unfortunately, he was so enormously fat that the blade couldn't get all the way through his neck. Um, <laughs> finished off uh, with an axe, which is a rather unpleasant, gruesome thought, but it does just, just goes to show that... I mean, his portraits are actually you know, fairly uh, wide, so to speak, but, uh, of course, the portraits were amazingly complementary, so you can imagine how large he actually was. But anyway, that's a, a separate point. Um, and also, I, I, I looked at this from the point of view of, of more recent examples. And one very good example, I think, is the UK in the 1920s and early 1930s. And both the UK story um, and the French Revolution story, I think, have resonance for uh, the Eurozone currently. Now, the UK story is, runs as follows. The UK rejoined the gold standard in 1925, one of the worst things that Churchill ever did. And they rejoined at an exchange rate which was significantly overvalued, therefore making the UK an uncompetitive country which had struggled thereafter with continuous, wide trade deficits that couldn't be easily funded. Um, the consequence of this um, was that there was continuous downward pressure on the exchange rate, even within the gold standard, um, and the way to try to deal with that was continuous austerity, year after year after year, so very much like we see in southern Europe uh, today. Um, the result of all that was, first of all, the general strike in 26, with a number of years of stagnation and not very exciting things going on, but then when the Great Depression came along, the UK was then faced with a major challenge. Um, and the way to deal with that challenge 
and was effectively to deliver an amazingly austere budget, which Philip Snowden, the Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time, did so in about September 10th, September 11th of 1931. This was a remarkable budget. It included uh, cuts for public sector workers of between 20, uh, sorry, 10 and 25% in their incomes. It was a very draconian story. But it was designed to persuade the international creditors that there was no way that the UK would leave the gold standard. The UK was an honourable country that wouldn't defraud its foreign creditors. That's the way they saw things at the time. The following day, the Times of London uh, wrote a leader article uh, which congratulated Philip Snowden, the Chancellor, for his decisive action in persuading uh, the world that the UK meant business in staying on the gold standard. (coughs) The remarkable thing about that story is that within the next 10 days, Britain was off the gold standard. The whole system completely collapsed. So what went wrong? The intention was to stay on the gold standard. Within 10 days, we were off the gold standard. And what I didn't realise until I did the research into the book was that in that intervening period, there was a political uprising, a small one, but nevertheless an important one. It's called the Invergordon Mutiny. And what basically happened was that Royal Navy warships returned to Invergordon, the port in Scotland. The ratings picked up their newspapers and discovered they were about to get pay cuts between 10 and 25 percent. And there was a mutiny, a small one, but nevertheless a mutiny. And what that revealed was that there were political limits to what you could do delivering austerity. It revealed that ultimately, uh, if you have a situation which imposes continuous pressure on the population that ultimately will resist, eventually you will lose the political argument. And that was reflected in the mutiny. And once the mutiny had happened, effectively, Britain's time on the gold standard was finished. It came up very, very quickly indeed. So people often say, well, actually, the the Snowden budget threw the UK into a very deep depression, and that was the cause of the depression and so on. That's not true. The Snowden budget, as it turns out, was the catalyst for Britain leaving the depression completely by accident, because effectively, Britain came off the gold standard, a huge fall in sterling, interest rates came down, a big... um, sort of house-building program came through thereafter, and suddenly Britain had escaped, even as other countries uh, were going into a deeper and deeper depression um, at that particular point in time. Now, going back to the French Revolution, um, the other thing I'd note here is this. Um, In the French Revolution, you had this big battle between the clergy, the nobility, the monarchy on one side, and the third estate on the other side. In the Eurozone today, I'd argue that the equivalent of the clergy, the monarchy, and the nobility are those in Northern Europe, the Northern European creditors, in particular countries like Germany, which are very well off, which lent lots of money to the South, and now want the money back, and the South can't easily repay. And the equivalent of the third estate in the Eurozone are effectively the workers and the unemployed in Southern Europe. They're the ones who have been asked to adjust the most heavily to the effectively systemic flaws within the Eurozone as a whole. And the danger with that, of course, is that if you have a continuous painful adjustment um, in southern Europe, then maybe eventually you end up with some kind of political shift within southern Europe, which is either some kind of uprising or rejection of the euro, or perhaps increasingly moving towards uh, what we might describe as extremist politics. Uh, the rise of the far right, the rise of the far left, increasing economic nationalism, which is ultimately inconsistent uh, with the survival of the European Union. I think this is definitely going to happen. But I think the lesson in particular from the Invergordon mutiny is that in the UK's case, there was five, six, seven years of austerity before finally there was a reaction. So predicting the reaction is difficult, but suggesting that the conditions for reaction are growing, I think is that much um, easier to to point out. So my conclusion from all this is written up in the final two chapters of the book. The the penultimate chapter uh, has a nice, happy title. It's called Dystopia, so the opposite of Utopia. 
Um, and the final chapter is uh, called Avoiding Dystopia. So there is some happy news, finally, at the end of the book, although some people have criticised it for not being sufficiently imaginative in, in coming up with the magic wand kinds of cures. But, of course, my point is that there aren't any magic wand uh, kinds of cures. So what does dystopia look like? Well, protection has been many different forms, not just in terms of uh, tariffs and so on, but all sorts of regulatory protection which is designed to protect the interests of individual countries while effectively uh, closing down the world trading system. There are lots of examples of this growing over the course of the last few years. Constraints on capital flows, flows across borders. And there are lots of reasons for doing so, perhaps, to try to reduce um, instability. But you're increasingly finding that in some countries, for example, pension funds are under pressure to invest domestically rather than abroad, which may help the economy in the short term, but doesn't necessarily serve the interests of the beneficiaries of pension fund um, over the long term. I think there's a risk that central banks may be pushed too far. I think they're moving away from being the technocrats of old, before the financial crisis, to playing an increasingly important political role, being increasingly politicised over the course of the last few years. Getting back to my comments about QE, the fact that it creates winners and losers, distributions of income, that's effectively a political decision. And I think that central banks are coming under increasingly political oversight, partly because they're being tasked with many more jobs than was the case before the financial crisis. But this could also go horribly wrong, and perhaps the most obvious example of this currently um, are the experiments taking place in Japan um, with Arbenomics. Now, Arbenomics has already established some degree of influence politically over the Bank of Japan, new Bank of Japan governor, a tremendous pressure to change policy from what seemed to be the rather conservative policies over the course of the last few years. Arbenomics makes a very big claim that actually the problem with Japan is simply an absence of macroeconomic stimulus, whereas I would argue that actually it's much more to do with issues about demographics and offshoring and absence of productively used women in the workforce and all these kinds of issues that have been important um, over the last um, few years. But let's imagine that in 12 months' time, Arbonomics is not delivered, that there isn't a proper recovery. What does Arbe then do? Does he say, sorry, I got it wrong, I promised too much, I can't achieve these sorts of things? Or does he say, let's try even harder? And so that would mean that the Bank of Japan would have to move away, I think, from what might describe as conventional, unconventional policies towards unconventional, unconventional policies. And by that I mean that they have to effectively allow a huge helicopter money drop into the economy. And that would be driven by a huge increase in budget borrowing uh, from the government, from the Ministry of Finance, which would be financed through printing of money, uh, which would then be dropped into the economy uh, via this monetary helicopter. It's the sort of thing that Adair Turner um, argued for earlier this year, although interestingly he said, try it anywhere other than the UK, which was a rather weak uh, conclusion from his, uh, his arguments. Anyway, the, the point about this story is, is that in a situation where you start printing money in this particular way, the first danger is the currency collapses. It doesn't fall a little bit, it collapses because foreign investors completely lose their faith in that particular currency. The second danger is as the currency collapses, there's a big increase in import prices, a rise in domestic inflation, and households in Japan begin to panic, begin to think that the yen isn't going to be worth quite as much. So they get rid of it as fast as possible. But if everyone is spending yen as fast as possible, prices will rise very quickly. And if you want to keep the shelves full and selling more, you have to print even more money to justify the increase in prices. And before you know it, you've gone from deflation towards a hyperinflation. You might say, this is nuts, it can't possibly happen. But hyperinflations are never planned. They're only a consequence, effectively, of undermining uh, the institute, institution of the central bank and undermining the independence of it. And that, I think, is a genuine danger for Japan, at least, um, over the next few years. There's a stately home effect, um, the idea of the selling of the family silver. Now, the, the more mature generation in the UK or the US 
was seen as very attractive, sell off all the best assets in our countries uh, to the highest foreign bidder to allow us to live a little bit longer uh, to a lifestyle we've become accustomed to. But the problem with selling assets to the highest foreign bidder is to make release cash for our generation, but it denies those assets for future generations. It's effectively intergenerational uh, transfer from the young to the old, and that's not such a healthy situation to come through. Eurozone crisis already mentioned. The possibility of further political upheaval, the possibility of breakup, all these things could easily happen. And as a consequence of that, the rise of political extremism, the rise of racism, <coughs> anti-Semitism, all these things we've seen in the past, and all these things could easily come back again. That's your dystopia story. So how do you avoid it? What things need to be done? Well, the reforms are difficult, and in many cases, I would argue, the reforms are so difficult that perhaps they might be near enough impossible, but I think there are some reforms that could be usefully thought about. The first one is this. We've forgotten recently about global imbalances. We've sort of put them to one side, but they do matter. And I would argue that global imbalance has been one reason why we've had the financial crisis in the first place. Uh, some countries that borrow too much run large current account deficits, but equally, and on the other side of the coin, countries that save too much, like China over the last few years, or Japan, or in particular within the Eurozone, Germany. Now, the Germans, um, when they were so successful with their exports over the last few years, uh, decided not to pay their workers higher wages because they want to remain competitive. They decided not to use their export revenues uh, to invest in German industry. They decided instead to put their export revenues into the German banking system and said to the German banks, please make sure you give us a decent return which is higher than that's available on domestic German bonds. Invest the money somewhere which gives us a decent return, but don't take any currency risk. So where did the money go? It went to Southern Europe. It wasn't so much that the Greeks and the Spanish and the Italians and the Portuguese borrowed too much. It was also the fact that Germans lent too much. This was really part of the big problem. Um, as a consequence of that, um, you ended up with uh, what became an increasingly unstable environment. So I would suggest as one possible reform that actually uh, ratings agencies and other agencies should think very carefully, not just about downgrading those who, who borrow too much, but equally downgrading those who lend too much. Because the reason for doing this is when you look at the financial crisis in the past, when you have a debtor crisis, ultimately the creditor also always pays. Everyone gets hurt. So I'd argue that somehow we have to resolve the issue of dealing with excess savings countries as much as excess borrowing countries. It's an important reform, I think, for the years ahead. Secondly, in the Eurozone, I can't think of any example over many, many hundreds of years of a monetary union that survived without some kind of political and fiscal union. So I would suggest if you want the Eurozone to survive, there has to be a move towards a political and fiscal union, perhaps alongside a one-off restructuring of Southern European government debt. You have to be taking uh, the conclusion that you can't force the Southern Europeans to do all the adjusting. There have to be losses for the creditors too. Not easy, particularly given the fact that Germany and France have very different views as to how Europe should look in the years ahead. But I think that's another important reform that might come through. The third reform. For countries like the UK, the US, it's too easy to become addicted to QE, to live off it year after year after year, to pretend that somehow it doesn't really matter. It's too easy to allow governments to borrow continuously because interest rates remain low thanks to QE. I think you need to have some kind of equivalent of what was known as the Graham Rubman Hollings Act back in the 1980s, where there was a medium-term commitment to deficit reduction. Basically says, look, we know that deficit is too big, we have to reduce them, but we'll also have a safety valve. In the years where the economy is too weak in recession, will stop that sequestration process during those particular years. So you stop the kind of nasty downward uh, spiral that we saw in countries in southern Europe over the course of the last few years. I don't know how you do this, but there needs to be a new social contract. 
between the old and the young. The boomers, I would argue, have had things too easy over the last few years. The boomers have a dominant influence in society. The boomers are the biggest voters in society. And their choices matter because they've had a huge influence in the kinds of things that are ring-faced in public spending. Things like health care, pensions. They're looked after while education and infrastructure are heavily squeezed. That effectively is the older generation borrowing from the younger generation. And they won't pay it back. So on that basis, there is a huge distortion to the way resources are allocated. I would argue in favour of a new social contract which ring-fences not pensions um, and health care, but instead ring-fences things like education and ring-fences things like infrastructure because that will actually help economies to grow over the medium term. And that forces issues about what to do with, for example, retirement age. It has to go up quite a lot further than has happened um, so far. For those of you interested in monetary policy, I would favour a shift away from a pure inflation target towards a so-called nominal GDP targeting uh, target, uh, trying to aim at the value of GDP rather than simply the inflation rate. Now, you might say this is simply a way of creating inflation through the back door. It's an obvious criticism of this particular approach. But I'll argue it slightly differently. The importance of having a nominal target is that it helps to preserve the value of financial contracts. It reduces the risk of a complete loss of trust between financial institutions, between government and financial institutions. It reduces the risk of defaults coming through. Then you say that once the central bank has established that nominal framework, uh, you then argue it's up to society to improve the split between growth and inflation. Society can choose between 4% growth and 1% inflation or 4% inflation and 1% growth. I know which one I would choose. It's obvious. Uh, but, of course, it, it helps to reframe the, the decision in, in terms of how to improve the supply side performance of the economy uh, rather than purely the demand side of the economy. Uh, greater mobility of labour and capital across borders, very important. Uh, what's odd about Europe currently is an increased anti-immigration movement. And actually, we need more immigration, not less of it. Uh, that would be a, a big positive story. Uh, dealing with the banks, um, look, I work for a bank, so I have to admit that I might have a vested interest here, but I do think the banks have hardly covered themselves in glory. And I'm pleased to say that even before the report that came out this morning from Andrew Tyre and his colleagues, um, I was already arguing in favour of the possibility of punishments for bankers who behave rather badly. Um, so uh, I got there before the, uh, the parliamentary committee got there. But the point about this is that I think some bankers uh, did indeed uh, try to extract huge rents, they did indeed uh, focus on their own uh, benefits without regard to the stability of the bank itself as a consequence of that there should be significant punishments. And I would suggest some kind of banking equivalent of a Hippocratic Oath, the equivalent of what we see in the medical profession, where there are certain codes of behaviour, ethical codes of behaviour, which if not met, uh, lead to certain punishments, including being struck off, obvious thing, uh, significant fines, big reductions in entitlements, being much bigger than we've seen so far, and indeed the possibility of jail sentences for those um, who significantly misbehave. And finally, a few words about my own profession, about economists. I would suggest that as economists, we've hardly covered ourselves in glory over the last few years. Uh, most people, all people, fail to spot the specific details of how the financial crisis evolved. They fail to spot um, how economies are often unstable. And they fail to spot how economies can go from periods of strong growth to periods of weak growth, assuming that somehow growth is always God-given and never, ever changes. And my biggest single concern about economics is effectively how it's taught. that increasingly focus on these wonderful mathematical models and econometric models, these quantitative systems, which look beautiful in theory and sometimes look beautiful in practice on the basis of data that goes back over, say, 10 or 15 years. But the reality is 
that we live in a world that's incredibly complicated, but most of the biggest policy challenges that have faced policymakers recently have been seen before, but over hundreds of years, rather than simply the last decade or two. So I would argue very powerfully in favour of a radical reform of the teaching of economics, and in particular a much greater focus on economic history, particularly the history of crises. Because only by learning about the crisis can we actually be looking out for the next crisis, work out it might be happening, and we also reduce our sort of sense that somehow we're completely in control of the situation. Because every time we think that, risk-taking goes through the roof and the situation becomes increasingly highly unstable. So economic history is the big thing, I think, for the future of teaching economics at university. Thank you very much indeed. So we would like to give you the opportunity to ask Stephen some questions. I have two requests. First is that keep your question or comment uh, short. And second, wait till you get a microphone, because otherwise the rest of the audience may not hear you. And first of all, I should say that I just looked at the time and I didn't look at it at all. I realized I've overrun massively, so I apologize. But, uh, but there we are. So uh, I think a question over there. Two questions. Yeah, in the back. Hasn't the problem with slow growth simply been that everybody has been pursuing austerity and therefore it's impossible for, really for anybody to grow? Second point is you seem to dismiss infrastructure investment with a throwaway line about Spain, but then you came back to it uh, when you said it should be ring-fenced. And hasn't been the great mistake in, in UK economic policy been the kind of spending that basically we should have had far more capital investment with interest rates so low as people like Martin Wolf, Samuel Britton, Robert Skidelsky, most of the LSE uh, have proposed. I'm going to offer a slightly different take on the austerity story. Um, I think the reason why austerity in some cases was pursued was because there was a very powerful belief that monetary policy was much more effective than it actually was. Uh, now, this is not true, of course, in the Eurozone, where I think there are specific problems associated with the absence of uh, monetary flexibility and also with the absence of fiscal transfers. I mean, the way you would deal with this in a, in a sort of you know, fixed economy monetary arrangement uh, would be that you'd have transfers from one part of the country to another, but it doesn't exist within the Eurozone. I think that's part of the Eurozone's failing. But in the UK's case, um, despite all the different estimates of multipliers and so on recently from the IMF, it seems to me that when the... OBR, the independent you know, fiscal watchdog, put this forecast together back in uh, 2010-2011. Pretty clear that they felt that the austerity that was being delivered could be easily accommodated on the basis that monetary policy would be much more powerful as a driver of growth than it actually proved to be. Or put another way, if perhaps um, the government had known how monetary policy would have been much weaker as an effect than turned out to be the case, perhaps they wouldn't have delivered quite so much austerity. I don't know that, but I think it's an important point. Um, secondly, um, I think that... Um, should, so what was your second question? It was about infrastructure, wasn't it? Sorry. Um, on the infrastructure point, um, I, I think this raises questions about how infrastructure is best allocated, how, how you choose which infrastructure projects to, to focus on and what are the likely returns from them. Uh, but in the case of Spain, I, my point is really si very simple, that infrastructure may be a good thing for society, but it's not a guarantee that you return to decent rates of economic growth. 
Um, and the problem, I think, is that <coughs> on a case-by-case basis, it's perfectly reasonable to have infrastructure projects, but you should treat them case-by-case case rather than saying they're going to be guaranteed to deliver a much faster growth rate. So they're worth doing, but not necessarily in a Keynesian sense. They're worth doing because they're worth doing. And I accept that with very low interest rates, more of them are worth doing than might have been the case previously. But that, I think, is not necessarily a Keynesian argument in favor of huge fiscal stimulus. It's just saying the priorities should be different from what they have been over the last few years. I think that the lady in the back. Um, you listed uh, five long-term uh, contributing factors to the high growth rates that we benefited from uh, during the golden age. Um, but you also observed that um, you didn't believe that technology, that whilst you believe in technology, you don't think that it can uh, likely return us to those growth rates. Um, I'd like to ask a two-part question. Uh, firstly, whether you think that technology um, and the internet, which became ubiquitous during that period um, where growth rates were at 4%, whether, whether that technology contributed inadvertently to the destruction of growth by the way that their network effects spread the contagion of toxic assets and information around the global financial uh, system faster than before that technology was available. Um, the second part is um, if technology did contribute um, to that uh, growth destruction from um, 2003 to 2013, what can be done to improve um, information and technology to better detect um, and reduce the risks uh, for the future while stimulating opportunity, innovation and value creation? Um, and I'd also like to um, uh, make a comment about um, your suggestion about um, you know, economic education being too much about quantitative, quantitative um, dimensions. And I would argue that technology has a role and an opportunity to play to make economic information much more qualitative in sync with, you know, the quant models. Uh, okay. Um, did technology contribute to the crisis? Um, well, the answer is, is, is yes, it did. Um, in a sense, I think you're right that the, the ripple effects spread much quicker than might otherwise be the case. But at the same time, you had a huge crisis in the 1930s, which didn't rely on quite the same technology. Um, so the fact that information flows around the world quickly was also true back then. I mean, people knew about what was going on in Wall Street almost immediately on the other side of the channel because, of course, you had the, 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 the telegraph from one side um, to the other. What I think technology did, perhaps, was to, to separate out the ultimate saver from the ultimate borrower um, and create the kind of daisy chain of connections from... You know, person A, who was an investor in a pension fund in Norway, through to person B, who was the issuer of a mortgage-backed security in a particular U.S. bank, which was bundled together into uh, you know, a CDO or something like that. So you have a whole series of people who are connected. But ultimately, the underlying saver didn't know anything about the quality of the underlying borrower. Um, now, the connections can be made through technology. That's absolutely clear. Um, but the assumption, of course, at the time was that by spreading the risk, across many millions of people, you'd reduce the risk. Whereas I think by spreading the risk, you effectively had hidden the risk. And therefore, life became that much more um, un unstable. Uh, your second question was about was it greed. I've written down greed here for some reason. Um, maybe it's a sort of Freudian slip, I don't know. Um, it's essentially, you know, how can we improve information and technology um, to factor in, for example, you know, qualitative control 
um, of that information that might help our economic models? Well, I, I think one area which is of interest is issues about uncertainty, what we don't know rather than what we do know. I think the models often, uh, you know, based on data that we happen to have collected, make it look as though we know what's going on. They, must, they may pass all the relevant tests and so on. But actually, the information that we haven't got is huge relative to the information that we have got. Uh, I think that economics, apart from dealing with history, also has to focus much more on the inherent uncertainty of policymaking. I'm not quite sure how you incorporate that into models, but I think the uncertainty is a very, very important part of what's happened over the course of the last few years. I think policymakers themselves are beginning to say, actually, we recognize finally that rather than living in a transparent and predictable and boring world, we actually live in a highly uncertain world, and we've got to try to work out what to do with policy in that uncertain world. I think there was a question on the balcony, so first in the middle. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I think for your thoughts, we probably will be a better place, the world will be a better place. But uh, I want to explore with you the uh, relationship between affluence and growth. Now, can affluent society be, uh, can, uh, can affluent societies show high degree of growth? After all, affluence means more leisure. I mean, affluent societies seek more leisure. Yeah. And uh, they're already what you call working at a full capacity. So there's no spare, spare capacity, everybody's employed. Resources are well employed. So I would think that the affluence means a low, um, uh, compared to low growth. Thank you. Uh, it's certainly possible to be affluent with low growth. It depends on obviously what your living standards are. Uh, my, my issue with the end of Western affluence is that we have made promises to ourselves in the future which can't easily be met. In other words, that we've created expectations for the future which can't easily be met. So the, the idea of the end of Western affluence is more the idea that the expectations that we have, the the rights that we think we have in terms of, say, retirement age or education or whatever, those rights are likely to be eaten away. So what we think we're going to get, what we actually will get, we two different things. So, so whereas um, you know, economic growth and the combination of growth and also the boomers being in, in work rather than in retirement made life very easily, made us you know, very easily able to make lots of different choices which involved considerable increases in affluence effectively, where we are currently, I think, is a situation uh, where the expectations that we think we have will not be met. And it's that sense that I mean that society will become less affluent than was the case previously. It doesn't have to become poorer, but I think there have to be what I describe as losses in society, and either reductions in certain entitlements or reductions in the value of certain financial assets, uh, losses for bondholders, losses for deposit holders, There's a whole bunch of potential losses um, over the next few years. And it's that sense of loss which I think characterizes where we are currently, which is fundamentally different from what we've experienced over the 60, 70 years of uh, yeah, since the Second World War. Okay, again on uh, balcony in the middle at the back. Thank you very much. Uh, my question is about the economic system uh, as a whole. Uh, some people believe that it is an illusion to, to believe that under a system that is based on growth, exponentially using more and more resources with time, and also on for profit, which means that everybody just tries to get the most out of it, is uh, sustainable, and I was wondering if you have considered alternatives to capitalism and uh, viable alternatives, that is. Look, I work for a bank, so how can I possibly answer that? Uh, uh, are there alternatives? Yes, there are alternatives, but some of them have been tried and have failed, like, for example, Soviet central planning. It uh, didn't exactly end uh, very happily, and the experience wasn't very happy. 
Um, are we living in the capitalist society? Not really. I mean, in the sense that if you want a true capitalist society, I think back to before the First World War, when public spending as a share of GDP was about 5 or 10%, if that. Uh, whereas now public spending is somewhere between 35 and 60% of GDP across the Western world. So we've actually moved quite a long way away from a pure uh, capitalist um, system. Um, so it's a very much a mixed economy. It may have been sort of set back a little bit during the Reagan and Thatcher years, but most of it's come back again um, over the last um, 10, 12 years or so. Um, I, I tend to think that the system we have is probably the, the, the best of a bunch of all potentially bad alternatives. Um, but I also believe that technology, at least, is something which should be seen to be a way of, of producing more outputs for given inputs. It's true, of course, that the planet has warmed up. It's true that we have environmental and climate change concerns. But the great thing about technology is it allows you to become better off through productivity gains without necessarily using too many more of the world's resources. So if you go back to the sort of Malthusian arguments of the you know, uh, late um, 18th century, you know, Malthus is basically arguing that you know, effectively through people having too much sex and having too many children, they'd eventually you know, bring people back to subsistence level all the time. He was wrong about that because the Industrial Revolution came along and productivity gains came through very strongly. Um, the problem currently, I think, is that the growth that we've seen in the West over the last 100 years has been mostly technology-driven. The growth we're now seeing elsewhere in the world, I think, is a kind of technology replication. In other words, we're replicating existing technologies rather than producing new technologies. And that replication, which is huge, partly as a consequence of capital flowing around the world much more quickly, uh, means that even if the cost per passenger mile of flying people around the world has collapsed, which is the sign of huge productivity gains, the total cost has gone up because the number of passengers is flying, flying around is so high that effectively the scarce resources that are being used have effectively risen. So you know, in, in increases in energy consumption and so on associated with this technology replication. The way around that, again, I think must be some kind of new technology, solar technology, wind power, whatever else, uh, which will help to save on those kinds of resources. Uh, but I'd argue that you know, the market can play a role in this because if indeed China, India, and others continue to grow rapidly and demand for fossil fuels continues to rise over the medium term, it may well be the case that we're talking about much higher oil prices 10, 15 years down the road. And if that's true, there'll be increasing pressure to move to alternative energy sources. I think we'll probably find them over time. Like the transition from coal to oil at the beginning of the 20th century, something similar may happen over the years ahead. So I think there are possible ways for market encouraged by government uh, to, to find some ways of releasing some of the pressure that you've described. I think one of my own students, it's back, yeah? This is going to be a difficult question, isn't it? Uh, yeah. No, it won't seem easy one. Um, so I was thinking, when you were looking at uh, GDP, did you consider the fact that um, in the digital economy a lot of services are given for free and that, in fact, we have seen growth but not in GDP? And then my second question is, so... How sure are you about your claims? And I would love to hear a um, probability <laughs> that in five years we won't be back at um, pre-financial crisis growth. Thank you. Okay. Um, well, first of all, GDP. Um, it's a, a number that's treated with the utmost precision by financial markets in a really stupid way because it's clear that GDP is a really weird concept, particularly in areas of services. It's not just an issue about free services, which I actually absolutely agree with you. It's also an issue about uh, things like, say, financial services. You know, how do you measure the output in the financial services industry? I work in that industry. I like to think that I'm reasonably productive, but 
Um, if I think, well, how do I measure uh, what's going on in this industry, um, it's very, very difficult. You can't measure it through income because, of course, that could be distorted through all those big bonuses and so on. Um, you can't measure it uh, easily through uh, interest rate spreads between you know, deposits and, and, and loans because that can change for all sorts of risk factors. It's got nothing to do with the efficiency or otherwise and how capital is allocated. And nor can you really measure it easily over, say, a five- or ten-year period because you may find that a financial innovation creates nasty downward distortions in the short term but actually creates opportunities for much more widespread growth longer term. So, for example, the Roaring Twenties were associated with financial innovation um, and significant mass production techniques, gave way to the 1930s, so a disaster, but you could arguably say that the 1920s performed the foundations for all that followed much later in the 20th century. So I, I think the, the problem here is that we, we do treat GDP with too much precision, and therefore you know, there has to be a bit of a question as to how reliable it really is. And I'm going to do a plug here from a friend of mine, Diane Coyle, who I believe is currently writing a book on GDP, how it's measured, what it means, which I think is coming out next year. So that will be probably um, quite, quite interesting. On probabilities, well, of course, probabilities can't really be applied to the future in terms of you know, non-repeated experiments, so to speak. But um, I, I would say that the chances of returning to where we were pre-crisis in terms of economic growth are, are pretty low. 10%, 15%, very low. Don't quote me on that, though. <laughs> okay, maybe one or two more questions in the balcony at the... Thank you. When most of the world's population is nowhere near the level of Western affluence, isn't it possible that actually uh, trade and uh, export-led growth could lead the West back towards the levels of per capita growth that it's enjoyed so far. I do take the point, in, rec in the recent past, it might not have shown so very well, uh, but perhaps other things have got mixed up with that. So, in fact, if the state went back to just managing the macro economy along uh, the lines of the reforms you've indicated and just uh, focused much more on productivity and export-led growth, maybe something might be different. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. When you look at um, the success of European nations in exporting to countries like China, with the honourable exception of Germany, it's been pretty poor. Uh, and perhaps there's an opportunity for that to change. Um, but I think that the, the, the issue here is, is slightly more complicated than that. We think of the China story or the India story only as a trading opportunity. But I think there have been other effects that have come through as a consequence of their success, one of which is associated with capital mobility. The capital that would always be invested in the past in the US or in the UK or in Europe is now invested in China or in India. And the consequence of that is that Chinese and Indian wages rise pretty rapidly, but at the same time there's downward pressure on Western wages. One of the striking features of the last 20 years, one of the reasons why income inequality is so high in, for example, the US or the UK, uh, is the downward pressure on wages, which is effectively masked by con continuous increases in household debt. So consumers can carry on spending, um, even though their wages were under continuous downward pressure. Um, so I think that you know, the, the, the problem in one sense is that we're levelling the playing field, not just by countries in the east and the south catching up, but also because of a, what you might describe as a continuous reduction in the terms of trade for wage earners in the Western world. So, you know, the U.S. has seen tremendous productivity gains over the last 20 years, but wage gains have not kept up at all uh, with those productivity gains. And also, I'd note that the savings behavior of countries, the surplus countries in the emerging world, uh, including, say, China and Saudi Arabia, uh, have actually helped distort uh, capital markets in the West, which have in turn contributed to some of the financial upheavals we've seen recently. So the trade story may be positive in some ways, but it hasn't been the only story that's come through. Some other parts of the story have been actually quite a lot more negative. 
which gives me a shameless opportunity to advertise the previous book I wrote called Losing Control, uh, The Emerging Threats to Western Prosperity, um, uh, which I discovered actually um, was also the title, or the first part, Losing Control. Uh, you can go onto Amazon, uh, look for Losing Control, you'll find the title of my book. It's also the title of a pornographic DVD, which I hadn't realized at the time. So uh, be careful uh, what it is you click on. Um, but uh, that's just a warning. Okay, one more question. I think there was one in the middle at the back. Um, you, you mentioned um, this evening uh, quite a lot from your book about um, public sector borrowing uh, versus uh, GDP levels. Um, but I noticed you didn't comment too much on total sovereign debt to GDP ratios. I wonder, uh, two-part question. Firstly, um, uh, certain economic press such as The Economist, Money Week, Investor Chronicle, etc., have made varying claims about the high levels and unprecedented levels of total debt to GDP. I wonder what you think of that outcome um, and where that bodes, particularly for the UK. And secondly, whether you believe that there will be an increase in the printing of money to cover that debt. First of all, um, the deleveraging that's been talked about within the, the corporate and household sectors has happened to a certain degree. In fact, there wasn't much deleveraging in the corporate sector because there wasn't much debt in the corporate sector in the first place. Household deleveraging has, has happened, but only because there's been a, a significant increase in, in government debt. So overall debt levels are genuinely um, relatively high. Uh, when it comes to thinking about the relationship between debt in one country and creditors in another country, um, this comes back to the idea of winners and losers, basically. Um, that If income levels are sufficiently low, there has to be a mechanism which decides that someone somewhere takes a loss. In the Eurozone, where there's no exchange rate, um, the loss can be taken most obviously through a country defaulting, which is what we saw with Greece. And it's actually a story that we saw very much in the 1930s with countries on the gold standard who had no choice of printing money. But if you have the option of printing money, you can devalue the exchange rate instead. Now, devaluation is typically seen um, as a way of improving your trade performance. But I'd argue that in current circumstances, it's a way of effectively shifting the burden onto your foreign creditor so long as the foreign creditor has lent you in your currency rather than in their currency. Because, uh, of course, what happens if they lent you in your currency, uh, the assets they've purchased are in your currency. So when you devalue in their currency, the assets are now worth quite a lot less. Um, and if I were the US or indeed the UK, I think very, very you know, hard, hard and, and, and thoughtfully about the opportunity of devaluation because effectively it's a default by stealth to the foreign creditor, to the Chinese, the Saudis, or whatever it might be. Um, the, the danger with this, of course, is that in particular for the U.S. rather than the U.K., um, if there's a sense that the country is pursuing this kind of policy of continuous devaluation, there may come, may come a point when people lose faith in that currency altogether. And the consequence of that effectively gains an intergenerational consequence, which is that the current generation spends quite nicely buying up goods from the rest of the world. But if the currency then collapses completely, then effectively the future generations can buy a lot less. So it's a way of reducing claims on global activity at some point in the future. So it, it's, it shifts the burden in the short term, but creates problems, I think, longer term. So I would like to thank you all for coming. I'm not sure whether you're going to leave this uh, lecture theater as a happier person, but you may very well uh, leave you know, this event as a wiser person. So finally, I would like to thank our speaker one more time. Thanks.